Revelation chapter 13. In uh, many of our hymns we've been singing now in the morning and in the banner behind me, we're thinking of the Lord's first coming. And in our teaching time from the pulpit, we have been looking at His second coming. They're both equally as profitable because they're looks at the Lord Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter 13. Uh, We'll just read three verses. You remember last week, we focused on the last part of the chapter, the worship of the beast and the mark. I see heads nodding. Good. You're alert this morning. And I promised that we would return and look at the beginning section, in particular the politics of the beast. Revelation 13, beginning in verse 1, Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard, his feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world marveled and followed the beast. This is a little more cryptic, perhaps, than the section we looked at last week. Uh, And when you come across a passage like this, the best way to study it is to look in the rest of the Bible and see where you can find something like this and see how the passages fit together. And actually, there are three very good places to look to help us understand the symbolism here of the four animals and the seven heads and the ten horns and the ten crowns. So that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at these other passages. We're going to try to limit the speculation as much as possible, while at the same time comparing Scripture with Scripture and see how much we can legitimately conclude about the, uh, the empire, the kingdom of the beast here in Revelation chapter 13. So, put on your study caps. And we're going to turn, first of all, we're going to make a right turn to Revelation 17. We'll be studying this, Lord willing, uh, in uh, maybe a couple of months. So we're not going to look at the whole section. Actually, 17 and 18 are about the uh, fall of uh, Babylon. But uh, we're going to look at one little section here in the middle of chapter 17 because it mentions the beast again and some of these symbols. Verse 10. There are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short time. And the beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth and is of the seven and is going to perdition. And the ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have received no kingdom as yet, but they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. These are of one mind and they will give their power and authority to the beast. These will make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them, 
for he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with him are called chosen and faithful. Now, if you were following that carefully, I think you might have learned a few more additional facts about the symbols. First of all, it says there are seven kings. That could be a correspondence with the seven heads we saw back in chapter 13. Okay? Yes? Possibly? So the heads may well refer to kings. Interestingly, it says that out of these seven, five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. Now, we've broken down the seven into five, one, and one. We can't identify who these are, although there is speculation. Um, Some commentators have gone backward in time and tried to identify uh, these seven with previous rulers of the Roman Empire. I believe that these are kings who are yet to be revealed in the last time, in the last seven years. Here the beast is described in verse 11 as the eighth. You have the seven and then you have the eighth. It sounds like there may be a succession of kings. Seven and then the Antichrist, the eighth. And he says, it says he is of the seven. So he is in power after the seven and in fact apparently is a member of the seven to begin with. And here's a confirmation. He's going to perdition. We know about that, about the Antichrist. So he seems to be number eight in a line. Now, he tells us plainly about the ten horns. He says, the ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have received no kingdom as yet, but they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. So the ten horns will represent ten kings who will rule apparently with the Antichrist, along with him. But for a while noticed, it says, for an hour, a short time. Not surprisingly, because he is going to take absolute power at a time, and there will be no co-regents. He will be the ruler over the world at that time. Then finally, these will make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them. And we'll see that later in the book of Revelation. Okay, a little, a little bit of light there on the seven and the ten. We'd like to know more, and uh, if you find the right commentary, you can find a lot more speculation about exactly who they are. But uh, when we look at the past, I think this is about all we can say right now. And certainly the ten are ten kings who rule with the Antichrist for a time. Okay, remember that number ten. We're going to see that again. Let's turn back to the book of Daniel now. This is wonderful when you think about it. Revelation was written around 90 A.D. Now we're looking at a book that was written uh, oh, 4, four 500 B.C. And we're going to see how the scripture fits together perfectly. Actually, we're going to look at two passages in Daniel. The first one is in the second chapter. should be familiar to a lot of you. It's the uh, passage about the great golden idol that was raised up in the time of Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel chapter 2. 
verse 31. This is Daniel now interpreting uh, the dream. First he says what the dream was, and then he's going to explain what it means. Verse 31. You, O king, were watching, and behold, a great image. This great image, whose splendor was excellent, stood before you, and its form was awesome. This image's head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This is the dream. Now we will tell the interpretation of it before the king. You, O king, are a king of kings. Now, he didn't say the king of kings. He said a king of kings. There's only one the king of kings. For the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. He's talking to Nebuchadnezzar now. And whatever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field and the birds of the heaven, he has given them into your hand and has made you ruler over them all. You are this head of gold. Okay? So he says plainly, the top section of the idol, the gold, represents the king that he's speaking to here, Nebuchadnezzar, ruler over the Babylonian empire. You remember from fourth grade, studying about the Babylonians, right? You, you kids that aren't in fourth grade yet, you have that to look forward to. You're going to study about the Babylonian empire. Okay. Now he's going to work down the idol. But after you, after you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours, then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. Anybody want to speculate? Who's the, uh, the next king that rises after him that's inferior to his? What is it? No, we've got to get somebody in there first. Yes, very good. Yeah, Medo... Medo-Persia, the Median uh, Persian Empire. Very good. Then, the third kingdom of bronze is... Yes, that's right. There you go, Dave. Now you're, now you're with it. That's Alexander. Yeah, Greece. And the fourth kingdom. Now, here's the one that's going to really engage our interest this morning here. We're going to see a lot about this fourth kingdom. Yes, that's right. Yes. You're anticipating me. Yes, Rome. That's right. The Roman Empire. That's good. This is good. Don't hesitate to chime in there. And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the others. Interesting how God characterizes the kingdoms, isn't it? And when we look at the animals in a minute, you're going to see how he doesn't just have the order of them, but he actually has a characteristic about the kingdom. And certainly the Roman Empire was like that. And it lasted for hundreds and hundreds of years and just subdued everyone that it came across. Whereas you saw the feet and toes... Okay, now, we're pretty clear so far. Right? Don't you think? All right, get ready now because somewhere along here, like in many of the passages of the Scripture, we're going to transition from the Roman Empire as we read about it in our history books to Jesus Christ taking His rightful place on the throne at the end of the tribulation. 
God does that a lot of times in prophecies about the Lord Jesus Christ. In prophecies about the nation of Israel, we saw that in Daniel 9, remember, in the 70 weeks. And so, as we read along, I want you to try to think, where is he making the transition from the old Roman Empire to the end times, when in fact this Roman Empire is going to be revived and we're living in those times right now? Okay? So look closely as we read along. 41, whereas you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided. Yet the strength of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. As you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. How'd you do? First of all, who's the, uh, who's the stone cut out without hands? Yes, right. Okay. Where do you think the transition was made from ancient Rome to the modern revived Roman Empire? You have a, have a guess there? It's tough, isn't it? A lot of it's going to depend... By the way, do you see the number 10 here anywhere? Yes, very good, in the toes. Isn't that interesting? There's the number 2 also, by the way. Do you know where it is? The legs, yes. Isn't that interesting? What happened to the ancient Roman Empire in split in two? Isn't that interesting? And as you go down the statue, you see, you see the, the, the torso, if you will, you know, the, of the original Roman Empire intact. Then you see the split into the eastern and the western sections of the Roman Empire. And then you see the ten toes. And there's that number ten again that we saw back in Revelation. Now, I believe, and I think uh, many believers believe, that the ten, remember the ten back in Revelation, those are ten kings, since they are co-regents with the Antichrist. I think when we get to the number ten, we're talking about these times, the end times. Okay? So, somewhere between the legs, the two, and the ten, the ankles maybe, you know, that, that breaking point. The legs are talking about the old Roman Empire, and then when you get into the ten toes, you're talking about the end times. And there are characteristics here of strength and weakness of the kingdoms, um, and that's about all we can say, just that there's strength and weakness mixed together. One thing we can say for certain, for certain praise God, there's a fifth kingdom. Really, that's the most important one. And that's the one that brings everything to an end. And that's the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. When he, the stone, comes in and crushes all these other kingdoms. Yeah, isn't that wonderful? How the word of God 
uh, talks about the same thing in different ways. And when you compare Scripture with Scripture, there's a little bit more light on the subject. Now, since this is prophecy, we're not going to come away you know, with a detailed description of who everybody is, what their names are, what countries they come from, and so on. But there's going to be enough so that we can see through a glass darkly, but we know for sure that after it's happened, you'll be able to turn to the Word of God and you'll say, that's exactly right. That's exactly what God said would happen, just as we have done in the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, now I don't know if you noticed, but we've really learned something else along the way here, and that is that it appears this uh, empire, this kingdom during the last days over which the Antichrist will rule is apparently a, a revival, if you will, of the Roman Empire. Now, not with Caesars and so on, but apparently in the same geographic area. We're going to talk about that in a minute. Uh, finally, uh, Daniel chapter 7. Here we're going to see the four beasts, excuse me, beasts that we saw in Revelation 13. This time the king is Belshazzar. Same kingdom, Babylon, different king. In the first year, this is chapter 7, verse 1 of Daniel. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head while on his bed. Then he wrote down the dream, telling the main facts. Daniel spoke, saying, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I watched till its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man and a man's heart was given to it. And suddenly another beast, a second, like a bear. It was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And they said thus to it, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked and there was another like a leopard which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. And there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking pompous words. I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. Which horn is that? Okay, yeah, which horn was it that was described in the passage before? I want to see how. The little horn, very good, yes, that's right. 
I watched till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As for the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. Praise God. Well, this vision was so uh, troubling to Daniel, he literally got sick. I, Daniel, verse 15, was grieved in my spirit within my body, and the visions of my head troubled me. I came near to one of those who stood by and asked him the truth of all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. So we, we're going to have a measure of explanation here. Those great beasts, which are four, are four kings which arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. Then I wish to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful with its teeth of iron and its nails of bronze, which devoured broken pieces and trampled the residue with its feet. And about the ten horns that were on its head, and about the other horn which came up, before which three fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth which spoke pompous words, whose appearance was greater than his fellows. I was watching, and the same horn was making war against the saints and prevailing against them, until the Ancient of Days came and a judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High, and the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. Thus he said, The fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all other kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth, trample it, and break it in pieces. The ten horns are ten kings who shall arise from this kingdom, and another shall rise after them. He shall be different from the first ones, and shall subdue three kings. He shall speak pompous words against the Most High, shall persecute the saints of the Most High, and shall intend to change times and law. Then the saints shall be given into his hand, for a time and times and half a time. Does that sound familiar? Three and a half years, right out of Revelation. But the court shall be seated, and they shall take away his dominion to consume and destroy it forever. Then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him you follow all that? Yes? Let's go back and let's look at the beasts, the animals. The first one we saw was like a lion and had eagle's, eagle's wings and so on. Verse 4. Okay, we've already gone through this once now, so you should be able to do this. What kingdom is that? Very good. Babylon. Uh, next beast was a bear. Thank you. Medo-Persia. Yes. Okay, well, I think uh, this is going to be an easy one. The leopard is who? Yes. And uh, we're not going to comment on all the details, the ribs and the uh, wings and so on, but uh, what a perfect animal for Alexander the Great as he swept across all the way to India. That's incredible. Just in a few years and then died. Uh, a leopard, a great picture of the Greek empire. 
Then again, the fourth uh, animal. Notice, by the way, that the fourth beast in Revelation was a, like a composite. Did you notice that? He had all the characteristics of the uh, previous kingdoms because we saw the animals there pictured in the beast. Well, here the fourth beast, of course, is the revived Roman Empire headed up by the Antichrist. We see again the um, trampling and breaking in pieces characteristic of the, of the uh, original uh, Roman Empire. We see the ten horns again. And here we find something else. It says, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out. Verse 8. We see the little horn. We believe that's the Antichrist. And th- three of the horns were plucked out by the roots. This may explain the seven. Ten take away th- three is seven in Revelation but apparently, he displaces three kings, the Antichrist, and then comes to power. Okay, uh, beyond that, I'm not going to do any more uh, guessing, but I would like to follow, review with you how in our own lifetime, really, uh, we've seen God moving in the affairs of men to set the stage for the last seven years of planet Earth before the Lord Jesus takes his throne. We, we often talk about how in 1948, and it's true, how in 1948, Israel was returned to the land. A miracle. God said he was not through with his people, and so in spite of all odds, he brought them back. And he had kept his people intact through all the, the thousands of years since he had scattered them. And really, there's a parallel. Um, I wouldn't call it a miracle, but it's an astounding thing that when he talks about the Roman Empire, and it, was, it collapsed around three or 400 A.D., uh, chaos reigned throughout Europe. We had the Dark Ages. And now, in our lifetime, we are seeing this jumble. If you'd seen a, a, a map of Europe, like in the 1500s, it was a patchwork of hundreds of little states all warring with, with each other. And in our lifetime now, it's all coming together, getting ready for the last scene of the drama. So, let me just review how this is actually being uh, taking place, this reviving of the Roman Empire in our lives. really began in uh, 1946, right after the war, And it's interesting how God used the Second World War as a stimulus, number one, to restore the Jews to the land, and also to unite Europe, which had been fighting against itself in two great world wars, in fact. But he used that Second World War to accomplish this second thing as well, and that is to revive and unite uh, the people in in the former Roman Empire. In 1946, Winston Churchill called for a kind of United States of Europe right after the war. The, the uh, countries of Europe had been devastated by war, and he realized, as many did, that unless they got together, they would have a great difficulty recovering from the devastation that was uh, wrought in Europe. Well, uh, his, his speech was taken up. There was a uh, movement called the United States, pardon me, United Europe Movement created. It didn't really get off the ground. It was really in 1950 a man named Robert Schumann made a similar speech and made a proposal 
for an organized Europe. And in 1951, that's really considered the birth of uh, today's United Europe. Actually, they, the uh, European Union now has a holiday that they celebrate. It's May 9th. And it's called Europe Day. And that's the day when Robert Schumann presented his proposal in 1950. Well, in 1951, they, they were called the Six at that time. It was Belgium, France, Germany, Italy, Luxembourg, and, and the Netherlands. They signed the Treaty of Paris, establishing what they called then the European Coal and Steel Community. Okay? The primary concern in those days was that they saw they were hurting themselves by competing in these two industries, coal and steel. And so they basically made a, an agreement to say, we're not going to charge tariffs and taxes between each other. We're going to trade freely. In uh, 1955, four years later, they adopted a flag, which is very interesting. They're very careful to avoid that word nowadays. If, if you read any of the literature, go to the websites. They're very sensitive to the individual member nations. They're sensitive to the nationalism of Germany and France and England and so on. And so they call it an emblem. And the flag, if you've ever seen it, is a background of solid blue with a ring of 12 gold stars on it. You ever seen that flag? That's the EU emblem, they call it, or really it's a flag. Now, it, would, it looked like that would be a perfect opportunity to find some kind of symbolism from the Bible. But really, there's only one place where something like that is mentioned. Do you know where it is? We've actually read about it in our study to the book of Revelation. Anything close to this, like this ring of 12 stars. Do you remember where it was? No. It would be neat if it was, but it's not. Yeah, Mario got it. Yeah, chapter 12, verse 1. It's interesting. And you know what it's a symbol of? The nation of Israel. Yeah. Now, I don't know. I'm just saying that, okay? I don't know what, if any, connection there is there. But in, in the Revelation chapter 12, the, the uh, woman, picturing the nation of Israel, besides the sun and the moon, there was a garland, it says, or, or actually Stephanos, I think, is the Greek crown of 12 stars. Isn't that interesting? Now, here's the way they say it. I, when they first came up with that flag, uh, it was really based upon, I think, they anticipated 12 member states. I think that's really why they did that. But now there's more than 12. <laughs> so, you know, it'd be kind of embarrassing to say, well, this is, represents the 12 because there's 15 members right now and there's uh, 14 or 15 waiting to join as we speak. But they said uh, when they made it, um, this was a comment, against the background of blue sky, 12 golden stars form a circle, representing the union of the peoples of Europe. The number of stars is fixed, 12 being the symbol of perfection and unity. Okay? Now, the interesting thing through this, by the way, uh, you can... because of the predominance of that number, you know, the ten co-regents, if you will, with the Antichrist. And so, we start off with six, and I remember the people were counting, you know, waiting for it to get to ten, expecting that when it did, the rapture would come and the Antichrist would be revealed. So we started with six in uh, 1951, 
1957, March 25th, the treaties establishing the European Economic Community, the EEC, and the European Atomic Energy Community are signed by the six. In Rome, as of today, they will be referred to as the Treaties of Rome. That's interesting. Well, now we begin to start accumulating other nations. 1972. On March 14th, four countries applied for membership. Six plus four is... Ah. They were Denmark, Ireland, Norway, and the United Kingdom. Now, in order for a country to become a member, they have to take... There are many, many laws and treaties that the uh, then common market agree upon, and now the EU that uh, if, a member, if a country wants to become a member of the EU, they have to take these treaties and, and uh, uh, contracts and everything else back to their own country and their parliament or whatever it is has to agree on them first before they can become a member. Now, I say that because out of the four, they took them back and guess what happened? On the 25th of that same month, a referendum is held in Norway on the country joining the European communities. The majority is unfavorable to accession. So out of the four, three joined. And uh, that next year, 1973, on the, they made a policy that uh, when countries joined, it would be the 1st of January when their membership would start. So in 1973, on the first day of January, there were now nine members of the revived Roman Empire, if we can call it that. Uh, 1979, May 28th, Greece became the 10th member. And I was uh, seven years old in the Lord at that time, and I remember the buzz that went to the Christian community at that time. Ten members from Europe in uh, the European Economic Community. Now, that went on for about seven years where there were ten members. And it was interesting, my own per personal experience, in September of 1985, I actually went to Luxembourg while there were ten members, to the EU headquarters, so to speak, at an international conference on um, accidental releases of radioactivity in the atmosphere. That's, as you know, that's one of the things I do. And um, it was interesting seeing the European countries and uh, their infighting. Even though they were ten members of one supposed, you know, unified group, they, they could not get along. The other thing that was interesting was the uh, contrast between the United States and the EU. The, I presented a paper, several of us presented papers on responding to releases of radioactivity, and we anticipated a big accident. And so we were scoffed and criticized because our models, that is our computer programs and, and all our software, was geared toward a big event. And they said, that's never going to happen. You're, you Americans are typically spending a lot of money you know, wasting your time on all this overkill when the worst thing is going to happen, you could do it on the back of an envelope. And that was in 1985. Well, in April 26, 1986, Chernobyl happened. It was less than a year later. And we were the only facility in the world that was able to calculate the results of it because it was worldwide. Well, uh, the, ten, the number 10 lasted for seven years and, and I know... Many, many believers during that time had their uh, uh, suitcases packed and were ready to uh, go meet the Lord. 
But interestingly, in 1986, on January 1st, Spain and Portugal became members, and now you have 12. And there were a lot of Christian bubbles that were burst, I know, because they were really hoping that when it hit 10, that would be it. In uh, January of 95, Austria, Finland, and Sweden joined, and that brings us to today. Today, there are 15 members of the EU. But as I said, there are 14 more, and that may even have changed since I, I looked, that want to join. The interesting thing is that the ones who want to join now, really, if you look, go get a, a map of the old Roman Empire, and you see what it covered, at least in the northern part of the Mediterranean, on this side, that would be uh, the eastern side, Turkey and the Balkans was part of the Roman Empire. Those are the ones that are applying for membership now. And so really, you've got Spain and Portugal, France, England, Britain, you know, all the, all the ones on the west side were the original members, including the Scandinavian countries. And it's like, now if these 14 join, that's really going to fill out, it's going to complete what was the Roman Empire at that time. And that's really the big thing on the agenda right now, is bringing this eastern chunk of the old Roman Empire into the EU. The, uh, now, there's a couple of things about the EU. It's not a country, it's not a kingdom, and in fact it's not military. It's an economic entity. That's, that's the main focus of the EU. You notice it began to protect the countries of, uh, from um, losing money in the coal and iron trade, right? Well, of course, it's become today a powerful economic entity. In fact, this may shock you, the uh, annual budget and the GDP, the gross domestic product now of the EU, is greater than the United States. They outdo us now economically. And in fact, every time they add a country, they become stronger. And they're thinking of adding a 14 or 15. And when the EU speaks, it didn't used to be this way. You know, when the United States wanted to do something around the world, trade-wise or whatever, we just said it, we did it, and they cooperated. It's not like that anymore. They've, they've faced us down many times on economic issues around the world. And they're becoming uh, a force to be reckoned with in, in worldwide economics. Uh, just another little interesting note. The EU has an anthem. You know what it is? I have maybe somebody here that might know what it is. No, you don't know. <laughs> it's uh, Beethoven's, I think it's the ninth, the Ode to Joy. That's, that's their, uh, they don't call it a national anthem. They have to be careful how they talk about it, but it's, it's an anthem. So, this is exciting to me. 1948, out of the blue, God brings the Jews back to the land, setting the stage for the last days. He's been talking about this revival of the Roman Empire prophetically in Daniel and Revelation. And now we're seeing it right now in our lifetime. It's coming together. The stage is set. And we've been seeing uh, over the weeks how God is, is... It's like you're sitting in the audience waiting for a play to start and he's putting the things on the stage. And really the only thing left now is to raise the curtain and take the Christians first to the Lord Jesus. And that'll turn the lights on for the play. Uh, one last thing I want to comment on. You're, you're probably familiar with the fact that they've been moving toward a, a single monetary unit in the EU. And in fact, it was 1999 uh, when they adopted the euro. Uh, what was it? 11 out of the 15 countries, including Germany, adopted the euro 
nice name, huh, for their main form of currency. Well, they've been playing with that concept for many years. And um, in ni 1989, they had a preliminary form. It was called the ECU, the ECU in those days. And uh, Bill was kind enough to get this for me. Um, it's actually from Spain, and it was like an original, one of the first cuts at uh, what the monetary, at least the coin, would look like. Now, the interesting thing about this coin is that on the front of it is a woman on a beast coming out of the sea. And if you're familiar with, let, just look. This, this is uncanny, really. Uh, look at chapter 17. We're going we're gonna to look at this in a few months. This is Babylon the Great. Verse 3. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. Who's the beast? Look back at chapter 13, verse 1. Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns. Sound familiar? Yeah. And on his horns, ten crowns, and on his heads, a blasphemous name. I link those verses because in chapter 17, we have two elements. We have the beast, we have the woman sitting on his back, and we find out in verse 13, he's coming out of the sea. And on this coin, here's a picture of a woman on a beast coming out of the sea. Not surprisingly, this didn't make it as the final candidate for the, <laughs> for the European Monetary Unit. I think somebody put two and two together and said, we can't use that. Now, I have to tell you in all honesty, and I don't know how many people know this, it's not too amazing a coincidence that you have this symbol on here. Because this woman actually has a name. You know what it is? It's Europa. Yeah, she actually comes from Greek mythology. Europa, from which the word Europe comes really comes from Greek mythology three, four hundred years before Christ. Let me, let me familiarize you real quickly. Uh, boys, for probably the first and last time, I'm going to tell you some mythology from here. But uh, Europa was a, a young woman uh, from around the Mediterranean area, and the king of the gods, Zeus, saw her and fell in love with her. And he tried to think of a way of, you know, and of course these crazy stories, there's no explanation to why they are the way they are. So don't look for a reason in this story. But uh, Zeus uh, wanted to make her his own, and he didn't know how to do it. So what he did was he changed himself into a bull. And she was out with her friends one day gathering flowers, and he came along posing as a bull in, the, in, a, in a herd of bulls, so that you know, it wouldn't look so weird, just one bull coming along. But he was the most beautiful one, of course. And he approached her, knelt down, and she saw that he, he was so beautiful, she climbed up on his back, at which point he immediately stood up and jumped into the Mediterranean and started swimming. And he didn't stop until he got to the island of Crete. And if you want the picture of the coin, and really one that corresponds very well in Revelation 17, there's, there's the picture right there, the, the beast coming up out of the ocean onto the island of Crete with his woman on his back. And that's really, I have a feeling, when, when they designed this ecu here, that's what they had in mind. They're Europe. It comes from Europa. Well, let's have a picture of a scene from the life of Europa. But that still doesn't undermine, I believe, the fit here. And it's really another confirmation that indeed it is the Roman Empire, that area of the world, from which the Antichrist will come and over which he will 
rule in the last days and ultimately the whole world. Just one more little sign, brothers and sisters. <laughs> We're almost there. <clears throat> okay, well, I've enjoyed, as we've gone through this, and I hope you have too, as we've gone into the Scriptures, looking at contemporary events, like we did the last couple of weeks on the mark of the beast. Look at Isaiah, and then we're going to close with this. Isaiah 42. Just a couple of verses. Isn't it wonderful God tells us beforehand? He, you know, he would, doesn't have to do that. But he tells us beforehand, before he does things. And he says that here in Isaiah 42, verse 8. I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to graven images. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. And he did that before the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, some say that there were over 300 prophecies fulfilled in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not one of them was missed. And I don't know how many remain thousands to be fulfilled in the last days. And every one will be fulfilled just like that. And I've enjoyed uh, just looking and seeing some of the prophecies in Revelation and how we're living in times right now where we're either accepting the fact that they're going to happen or even anticipating them. As, not just as believers, I mean as, as a world. Let me review just a few that we've seen already. We, we saw the mountain going into the sea. And as we speak, there is an asteroid watch worldwide now. Expecting. You know, it's just a matter of time, they say, for something like that to come. In the 1950s, I remember as a kid, you know, we were, as a people around the world, we were convinced that we had conquered plagues and diseases and so on. And yet you know that that's in the judgments. And here we are now in the age of Ebola and AIDS and a new phrase in our dictionaries, bioterrorism. And we realize just how vulnerable we really are. The sixth seal, we saw that. Remember the sky rolling back and people hiding in the rocks. What's the connection there? I don't know, but you remember when we looked at the gamma ray bursters, the incredible description by that Russian scientist as he wrote down in scientific words what it would be like if one were to happen in our vicinity. And it, it was just like the sky rolling back, remember, as the ozone layer turned to nitrogen oxides. And people would have to hide from uh, being bombarded by the elementary particles that would come. The advent of world communications just the phrase of the two dead witnesses being viewed by the world. Arabs in the desert and people in the jungle and people at the poles now tune into CNN and watch world events happen as they happen. The internet. You're never more than uh, the speed of light away from anyone else in the world. The mark of the beast. We looked at that. The... Uh, the rise of the smart card, the things like the digital angel and so on. Perfect fit. And certainly we can see the uh, advantage of security and peace that would want people to accept something like that. And we saw this morning the revival of the Roman Empire, a place that was lost 
500 years ago was nowhere. Are you ready? That's my question. Are you ready? It's very, very near. Jesus said, be on guard that your heart may not be weighted down with dissipation or drunkenness or the worries of life and that day come on you suddenly like a trap. There's coming one final, if you want to call it power struggle, one last great upheaval, upheaval of nations and kingdoms and empires. And then... Uh, Antichrist will be in the midst of all that. I don't know who he is. We don't know exactly where he's going to come from. There are a lot of unanswered questions. The seven, the ten, the eight, the five, the one, the one. A lot of questions about that. But this we know. There will be a final kingdom. A fifth one. And there will be one who will rule over that kingdom. The only one who's fit to rule We know exactly who he is, and we know how long, because it's going to be forever. Revelation 11, then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever." And ever, Daniel puts it this way, I was watching in the night visions and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. And finally, in keeping with the season, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice, from that time forward, even forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that there is coming a time, and very soon, when there is one who will come, the only one who is fit to rule, the King of kings and Lord of lords, And He will take His rightful place and never surrender it. Emmanuel. God with us. Oh Lord, we look forward to that day. The earth is groaning right now. We are groaning within ourselves. Longing for that day. And so we say again, even so, come Lord Jesus. In Your blessed name. Amen. Thank <laughs> you.